Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. On the 1st of September 1951, the ANZUS Treaty was signed in San Francisco. Peter Jennings speaks to Mike Goldman, Chargé d'Affaires at the US Embassy in Australia, about the importance of the US-Australia alliance and the relevance of the treaty 70 years on. Well, Mike Goldman, thanks for uh, joining us on Policy, Guns and Money. Uh, thank you, Peter. It's, uh, it's an interesting time, the 70th anniversary of ANZUS, uh, and of course we have media now beginning to talk about what's going to be happening uh, mid-September. Uh, when uh, Peter Dutton and Maurice Payne go to Washington, D.C. for the next round of the Osman Dialogues. Uh, so it's a good moment to talk about the alliance uh, and Australia-U.S. relationship. What, in your view, makes for the longevity and success of, of the ANZUS alliance, Mike? All right. Well, well thanks, Peter. Um, and thanks for the opportunity to talk with you today. Um, before I answer your question, speaking of longevity and success, I'd like to commend ASPE for its longevity and success. I understand that you have your own anniversary, two decades of success. and 20 uh, years, two, yeah. Yeah, 20 more years of longevity and 20 more years of success. Um, talking you. about um, the alliance, um, I think a couple of things account for longevity and success. The first is that... Um, Unlike other align, you know, strategic alignments with other countries, between other countries, um, the alliance between the U.S. and Australia is one that's born of, um, of shared values, of shared sacrifice, of common interests that, you know, spring from the fact that we're democracies representing open societies. Ours isn't in an alignment of convenience or um, transaction. It, it's one that, that's sort of deeply felt and resonant and sort of consistent with our character as democratic countries. What this does, and then this is the second point, is that it provides a foundation that allows for a high degree of flexibility, adaptation, and innovation. We're capable as democracies of self-correction. We're capable of realigning um, our priorities you know, in, in changing context. If you just look at the world in 1951, it, it was a vastly different geostrategic context than the one we're facing now. You know, you just look back, if we were in the height of the um, early Cold War, you know, we were in Australia and New Zealand, American forces were in Korea. Just two years prior, um, you, you had the um, communist takeover in mainland China. Um, you had equally substantial, you know, you, you mentioned that you're talking with my colleague at the Japanese embassy. You know, you had the um, beginning of the integration of Japan into our alliance network as an ally and as a strategic partner. So those were the issues that were framing discussions in 1951. Currently, you know, we have a different strategic context. We obviously have China and its geostrategic challenges, but you know, in a much more difficult and complicated environment than was the case in a more binary Cold War um, environment. But we also have non-traditional security challenges such as pandemic disease, international crime, terrorism, and I'd say above all, climate change. So what, I, what makes me think that, that our um, alliance has been enduring and successful, but also gives me confidence that it will continue to be, is the fact that we do have these, this uh, flexibility. As democratic societies, we share a remarkable ability to, to self-correct. And I, I think I'm really confident that over the next seven decades, we'll be just as successful as we have been over the past 70 years. What's been striking, uh, Mike, is the ability for both countries to sort of find new areas for cooperation. I mean, we're now talking about 
really a sort of a growth of ANZUS beyond its military and intelligence routes into, as you say, areas like pandemic cooperation, industrial cooperation. Um, what would you say is the growth path for the alliance going forward? Yeah, well, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in, in what you just said, that, um, you know, we have to stay true in one sense to the strategic um, roots of the alliance, you know, even as we adjust to a changed geopolitical uh, context. And I think if you look at, at both Australia's defense strategic update and our um, interim national security strategy, we do this. And I think when you see, you mentioned Osmond coming up in um, a couple of weeks in Washington, I think you'll see um, some ambitious new commitments in forced posture that re reflect this kind of adjustment to a new reality. But, but as you're suggesting, what's remarkable about our alliance is that even as we stay true you know, to um, the strategic roots of the alliance, we also are, you know, um, we need to make the alliance resonant for a new generation. They're just as ANZUS was to, um, to us and for the people who um, came before us, we'll need to focus on other things as well. Uh, for example, you know, we'll focus on technological innovation, on pandemic disease, as you mentioned, on climate change. But, you know, it's important. Let's also, as we make the alliance appealing and resonant for a new generation of Australians and Americans, we need to think about things like um, continuing to provide jobs, continuing to support innovation. You know, the United States is by far Australia's most consequential and important economic partner. We're by orders of magnitude, Australia's largest source of foreign investment. And these aren't just for you know static industries. They're, they're it's not just money poured into real estate. It's um, investment that goes to the real innovative sectors that's going to support jobs higher than the average wage in, in the technologies of the future and in the industries of the future. And I think this is where the alliance, um, I think this is where, in addition to the security aspects, this is where the growth path will be. That's interesting, Mike. Our colleagues at the U.S. Study Center at Sydney University put out a good report recently about the future of the relationship, and they emphasised quite a lot the idea of geoeconomics, which I guess is where economics meets strategy. And one of their suggestions was we should now not simply have a two-plus-two meeting of foreign and and defence ministers, but also bring in an economic minister, which I guess would probably be the treasurer in the Australian context, maybe the finance minister. Um, I know it's hard enough to sequence two plus two meetings, but you know, <laughs> what 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 are your thoughts about that? And indeed, how how does Australia and the US address those um, broader uh, geoeconomic questions? Yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that's terrific about the alliance is that. Um, you know, we have these formal structures, but then, you know, if Dan Tian wants to pick up the phone and, you know, and, and talk with Janet Yellen, they just pick up the phone. Um, they have conversations like this all the time. And I mean, it's a bit more complicated. We do have to staff these conversations and make them happen. Um, but they do happen with surprising regularity. Um, so I'll leave the, for the formal structuring it to others to decide. But I'll, I'll just say that these conversations do happen all the time. And we do take note also that your prime minister has suggested that we formalize this more at a higher end and, and, and Washington is paying attention to that. So I'm sure we'll, that'll be a, uh, something that we'll be talking about going forward. It, it's, I mean, one of the interesting things about the alliance, Mike, I, I always thought, and I, I used to be part of the, uh, you know, official level meetings that took place before Osman uh, exchanges, that it's an alliance that's marked by almost no machinery. 
Mm-hmm. So, you know, you go to Brussels, uh, you know, there is a massive NATO headquarters, a new one now, very impressive large building where NATO people do what NATO people do. ANZUS is an annual meeting and a few staff-level exchanges that take place before that. Uh, and then more than anything else, the ability for people to pick up the phone and talk to each other. Yeah. I, I find that one of the most remarkable things about the alliance is that there's almost nothing there other than uh, a sort of a drive to want to continue to cooperate together. Yeah, I, I think that's a it's a good observation. Um, it speaks to a couple of things. It speaks to the ease at which we talk at all levels, you know, from um, our working level officers at the embassy to cabinet level um, officials. Um, but it also shows how intertwined we are. You know, if, if you look at our intelligence sharing, if you look at um, law enforcement cooperation, of course, military co- coordination, we have people at the staff level embedded in each other's bureaucracies. And I think that that makes it such that we don't need to have an enormous secretariat somewhere in a capital because we are already intertwined. There are no two militaries that are more interoperable than ours. And I think there are no two bureaucracies that speak more at ease with each other than, than Australia's and the, and the United States. So that, so the end result of this is when you have Osman, they can just get down to business. Um, they don't have to you know, rely on a whole set of kind of pomp and circumstance to get it going. Yeah. So another anniversary that we should uh, talk about, given that uh, we started talking about anniversaries, is, of course, uh, we're now almost 20 years uh, from the 9-11 attacks, which was, of course, the uh, the event that led to the only formal invocation of the alliance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, John Howard famously was in Washington, D.C. when that happened. And then uh, moving on 20 years, of course, we've had the uh, chaotic scenes of the withdrawal of um, U.S. and allied forces and, and supporters from Kabul. Do you think the alliance is in any sense at risk uh, because of a, a sort of an American mood of, of introversion, uh, turning away from a more complex international environment, or, or is that not uh, a justified concern? Well, I, I think it's it's, um, it's always a, a justifiable question to ask because, you know, let, let's face it, given America's history as a continental power, we do have um, moods of introversion and we have a history where we're inward looking I wouldn't say, though, and Australia shares some of these characteristics, I, I, I should say. Um, I'd say most generally, I don't think we're particularly at risk of this. And the reason I say this is, you know, I was mentioning the different geopolitical context in 1951. If you look at the um, makeup of our societies now versus 70 years ago, we're both much more multicultural, diverse um, immigrant-driven societies than we were then. We have international connections to an extent that I think just weren't there 70 years ago. Um, I'd say in that sort of on the supply side, on the demand side, um, the challenges that we're facing, um, we can't afford to look away. You know, there's somebody mentioned, you know, climate change, transnational crime, um, pandemic disease, dealing with a rising China. These are the sort of things that, that will demand our attention and demand our concerted effort. I'd like to mention too, since, since you brought it up and I thank you for it, um, talking about 20 years of shared sacrifice um, and endeavor in Afghanistan. You know, I, We're all aware that, as you mentioned, the only time ANZUS has been formally invoked, the um, mutual security aspects of it, was in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 when your prime minister was in the United States. And as Americans, we'll never forget that. That's something that will stick with us deeply. In the 20 years since we've been shoulder to shoulder in Afghanistan, you've had tens of thousands of troops serving Afghanistan. You've, You've lost dozens of servicemen. 
Um, we have similar sacrifice. Um, at our embassy here, we have lots of people who served in Afghanistan over the last two decades, both in a civilian capacity and in uniform. And they've worked along Australian colleagues. Um, my wife, for example, worked for um, USAID in Afghanistan about eight, 10 years ago. And she has very strong memories of working alongside um, her Australian mm -hmm. colleagues. And whatever the um, you know, history will, will judge, and it's not over yet, how this uh, conflict is winding up after 20 years, I think one thing's for certain, and that's the United States and Australia stood together during this time. And I have every confidence you know, that, that we'll continue to. Yeah, Mike, thank you. Another development that's been interesting, particularly in the last 10 or 15 years, has been the sort of growing trilateral relationship between mm -hmm. Australia, Japan and the US. That I mean, that really has been a success story, a bit of a secret success story. You don't often see it being talked about that much, but it's now a powerful thing in its own right. Do you think there's a case to say that Japan should become a member of ANZUS? Well, I... It's, that's a bit above our, my pay grade, um, but let me just say that both of our countries enjoy an incredibly vital and important bilateral relationship with Japan. I mean, I think it's the only relationship that probably rivals um, our own bilateral relationship in importance is the one that we each share with Japan. In addition to, you know, we have the, tri the trilateral security dialogue, which I think could be made more robust. It's already substantial, but we could enlarge that. Beyond that, there's, there is an existing arrangement, which I am really enthusiastic about, and that's the Quad, you know, which of course also includes India. And um, what I think is remarkable about the Quad, or I really love about it, is the fact that you have four Indo-Pacific democracies that couldn't be more different. You know, you have the second largest, soon to be largest country in the world in terms of population. You have um, countries that are, you know, vastly different in terms of their um, uh, demographics, geography, history, level of economic development. But what makes the this grouping effective and a source of, of innovation and creativity, and I think, um, I think ultimately um, results is the fact that we're open societies and we're democracies, and we can talk in the sort of frank manner that you and I just described. You know, and, and it's interesting that that the Quad. Um, had its own inception around 20 years ago with a tsunami and focusing not in any sort of ideological way, but in a sort of results-oriented way on delivering badly needed assistance to people in need. And I think if you look at the current focus of the Quad, you know, we're looking at pandemic response, we're looking at climate change, we're looking at technological innovation and reactions to misinformation globally. And I think you see this same sort of practical uh, focus that animated the quad its inception. So I'll leave the um, expansion of ANZUS <laughs> to, to my betters, but for the moment, um, I think we can certainly focus on the quad as something that has enormous potential for continued success. Yeah, thanks, Mike. I, I um, had cause just recently to reread the, the ANZUS Treaty, which I, I uh -huh. think is something that all officials should do at least one, once a year. And um, uh, the reason I did it was because I was I was just interested in finding out was there ever a mechanism contemplated for expanding the, the alliance, mm -hmm. and the answer is not really. But there is clause eight, which makes it possible to um, uh, bring in any other party to be uh, an observer or, or to be consulted oh, in in alliance right. processes. And I, I could see something evolving over time where maybe uh, both Japan and India can become party mm -hmm. to that. So you'd have mm -hmm. the 
the bilateral, but then you might spend half a day in a sort of formal, formal type of exchange. So there is that, um, that possibility. Now, Mike, um, something that um, we often say about ourselves and something that the Americans often kindly say about us is that we, we Australia punches above its weight in the alliance relationship. Now, I, I, I'm not asking you this to give you an opportunity simply to be nice to us. <laughs> I, want, I want you to give me a really hard assessment about that. Do you think that's true? Do we really punch above our weight? And, and what are the things that America might want more from an ally like Australia? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. Um, I, I should say I'm a boxing fan and I used to be a, a really bad amateur boxer. So with that said, I don't love the metaphor. You know, we're, we're, we're partners in the alliance. Of course, there are certain asymmetries given, you know, our respective size. And there are some areas where each of us have comparative advantages. But I wouldn't say Australia is a lightweight by any stretch or that you need to punch any harder. Um, you know, it's it, President Biden mentioned in the video address, and I'm sure he said in his conversation just this morning with your prime minister, Australia stood with the United States. We've, we've stood with Australia in every major conflict since World War I, including Afghanistan that we just talked about. But it's more than that. You know, if you look at the, most recently the, the Operation Ironside, this remarkable law enforcement cooperation that we had that brought down um, hundreds of um of organized crime members um, in Australia, but also in Europe and the United States. We did this through the AFP's uh, technical expertise working with the FBI. If it weren't for the AFP's um, sophisticated um, ability to monitor these networks and you know the, the sort of technological means that they use, we wouldn't have been able to do this. Um, so Australia played a, a a key role in this. You know, if you look at certain aspects of um, the space industry, or if you look at hypersonics, um, you know, Australia is a world leader in these things. Um, or if you could look at it in politics. Uh, before I came to Australia, I was heading our mission in Fiji. And I worked really closely with your High Commissioner, John Feeks, and his team there. And there were many aspects where Australia was taking the lead and we were um, supporting Australia's efforts. Um, so in that sense, I wouldn't say, you know, you could, they could ask us if we're punching above our weight in the Southwest Pacific and whether there's more that we need to contribute. I think we're, you know, we'll need to adjust together as allies to new challenges, but I think you have every right to ask Americans what we can do to step up just mm -hmm. as we together can ask what we can do collectively better. So Mike, as, as uh, Shaje, will you be um, going to the Osman dialogue when it happens? Ordinarily, I would, but um, given um, COVID, now we're under pretty strict instructions not to travel as not much as we would ordinarily. So that's kind of a bummer. Okay, so can you can you give our audience a sense of you know what what's going to unfold? How, how do these things get sort of choreographed, and and um, how do they happen? Uh, what what can we expect to see when when the meeting actually takes place? Yeah, we have ministerials just as you do with all sorts of different countries. Um, what makes this different and special, I think, is something that you alluded to in the beginning. We don't have a, a need for pomp and circumstance and ceremony. We just get right to it. The other thing is, as we discussed already also, is the fact that we, our ministers, um, our heads of state, we, our heads of government, we talk together all the time. So what is different about um, Osman is it gives a chance for you know, our, our defense ministers and our foreign ministers to um, really think strategically in a way that they wouldn't all that they wouldn't um, necessarily be able to in their more regular conversations. 
I think out of this will come, um, and I don't want to, you know, get ahead of the discussions themselves, but I think you're going to see some ambitious commitments on forced posture on the military side and on the civilian and economic side. I think you're going to see a renewed commitment to deal with um, some of the geostrategic challenges um, that are facing the region. So what I'd expect because of COVID, we're not going to have, usually Osman would have a, a sort of diplomatic dimension with these intensive high-level strategic talks. And then we would also have a public diplomacy aspect to it where we might have speeches, we might have appearances in front of students, um, this sort of thing. We're not gonna have the latter because of COVID, uh, unfortunately. So it'll be a real emphasis on the kind of hard policy discussions. Mm -hmm. I know that when Osmonds have happened in Australia, often the Prime Minister gets involved. Um, I, I was involved in one where uh, John Howard really played a, a leading role in 96, it was, so quite a while ago now. Uh, this time around, we have the PM, uh, Mr Morrison, is uh, now, it's known, uh, going to be having a phone call with uh, President Biden, I, th I think just in the next few days. I, they had it this morning. Oh, they had it this morning. Yeah. Okay, well, there we go. Uh, can you give us a readout of anything that came from that? that it happened so recently that uh, we don't have, except we don't have a, a real detailed readout. Usually we'll get some sort of transcript in the, you know, a day or two later, but we, we got a, a pretty good sort of outline readout, which is consistent with what you've seen in social media. You know, they, right. they talked about Afghanistan. Um, they talked about the effort to get Australian citizens, American citizens, and Afghans who have supported our efforts out of the country. They talked about future development of, of Afghanistan, and they talked about the alliance more generally in the context of the 70th anniversary of ANZUS. Well, uh, Mike, it's been great to uh, talk to you. I think we're all looking forward to what we hope might be coming out of uh, the meeting. Um, uh, I think one of the great pleasures, as, as you've said, of working uh, this particular alliance relationship is the capacity to get down to substance pretty quickly and to, to do good and interesting and innovative things. So that's certainly what I hope we'll see coming from uh, the meeting in Washington, D.C. And again, thank you for your time. It's been great to talk to you and to get your perspective on the anniversaries and the future of the Alliance relationship. Yeah, likewise. It's a pleasure talking with you and thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Mike. This week, you heard a conversation with Peter Jennings, Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and Mike Goldman, Chargé d'Affaires at the US Embassy in Australia. We'll be back with another episode soon.